0: God made us a family. God gave. Talk was given at St. and Colby Church Catholic Church in Houston, Texas on Tuesday, May 22nd as part of the World Meeting of Families Catechetical Series. In this talk, Alan Abair of Your Holy Family Ministries discusses the third catechesis entitled God's Great Dream. In this talk, Alan encourages parents to see their children through God's eyes while seeking to discern the great plans God has for them. of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God's great dream. Did you not know that I must be about my Father's business? Let's recite the opening prayer together. To us, therefore, who believe, the bridegroom always appears beautiful. Beautiful is God, the Word with God. Beautiful in the virgin's womb. Where, without losing his divinity, he assumed humanity. Beautiful is the word born as a child, because while a child, he sucked milk. While being carried, the heavens spoke.
1: The angels sang praises, the star directed the journey of the magi. He was adored in the crib,
0: food for the meek. He is beautiful. Therefore, in heaven and beautiful on earth, beautiful in the womb,
1: beautiful in his parents' arms, beautiful in the
0: miracles, beautiful in his sufferings, beautiful in in inviting to life, beautiful in despising death, beautiful in giving up his life, and beautiful in losing it, beautiful on the cross, Beautiful in heaven, listen to the canticle with intelligence, and do not let the weakness of the flesh distract your eyes from the splendor of his beauty. Supreme and true beauty is justice. You will not see the beautiful one if you consider him unjust. If he is just in all places, he is beautiful everywhere. Amen. That's by St. Augustine. He wrote an expo- a set of expositions on the Psalms, and, and this just talks about the beauty in all those stages. I mean, we just went through Jesus' entire life. He said he was beautiful at all those times. But yet, to the naked eye, to the people of his time, it may not have been beautiful. You know, laying in the stable in this manger, right, which was the feeding trough for the animals, There's a lot of psalms when we read them, you know, the Psalms of St. David They just kind of repeat over and over. And you're like, why is it repeating over and over and over? It's because I want you to get something. And and so I think in in that vein, St. Augustine wrote something and just went over and over and says, no, he's beautiful everywhere. So that we would get it that indeed he is beautiful. I went ahead and put this in here. This is the entire passage of the fifth joyful mystery that we are meditating upon because tonight we're going to talk about kind of the scene at the end so i want to put us into the scene this is something that saint jose maria escrava did this is his recommended way of praying so when you sit in adoration or you just go to your your prayer uh, time read scripture and put yourself into that scene so i don't know if you've done that with this passage yet, but we're just going to walk through it. And I'll, I'll make some commentary. View whatever you want. Put yourself on that journey to Jerusalem with Mary and Joseph and their family, their extended family, with Jesus. And picture whatever that looks like to you all the way through. And it's on two pages. Each year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to festival custom. They, After they had completed its days and they were returning, the boy Jesus remained behind in Jerusalem. Imagine how that is. Do your kids ever remain behind? I know we've gone to birthday parties, go to visit friends, and we'll get everybody loaded in the car, and we have nine children, so it's easy to have happen. I'm sure it's never happened to you guys. Yeah, because you only got four. We get everybody in and, and and we go off to go and we're like, Oh, wait a minute. And one of our kids, is like, Hey, you forgot so and so. Oh yeah. Went to I the thought bathroom. they were yeah, they went to the bathroom. <laughs> Who knows? So these things happen in family life. And that's what happened here. It just sort of goes right to it. And the boy remained behind in Jerusalem. What? I, they didn't expect that. So thinking that he was in the caravan. Well, you you know, I'm sure he's with Uncle Joey and Anthony's. Yeah, or, you know, he's he's with his friends. He's probably having a good time. Don't worry about it. You're overreacting, honey. Thinking he was in the caravan, they journeyed for a day and looked for him among their relatives and acquaintances. But not finding him, they returned to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, three days. I know how bad it is after three minutes. Of knowing that your child is not where they should be and going through your mind, what could have happened? Because they're, they're journeying in, and, and they already went all the way back to Jerusalem. They looked along the road and, and the, the roads between the cities back in that time, some of them were safe, some of them were not. There's a very famous one, I guess, it, is the, the road where the Good Samaritan parable is set. That was notoriously dangerous. I don't know how this particular one was, but I'm sure as they were walking back to Jerusalem, they were kind of relieved not to have found a body along the path, right? Because it was very different times. And now they get back to Jerusalem thinking they're just going to find him. And I don't think maybe Jerusalem was kind of like the Houston of that day where it was a long time to go through the entire city. And especially if you're looking for one person in a city of maybe even 50,000, That's a lot of homes, a lot of people to look for. But they found him after three days. Symbolic of those three days in the uh, the tomb, right? A foreshadowing. They found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. And that's what this image is behind the uh, the wording. That's, That's Mary right there. There's Joseph. And she's whispering to him. And we get to hear what that is. Sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they too were astonished. (laughs) I think that's putting it mildly, astonished. And his mother said to him, son, why have you done this to us? And we don't know the exact tone, it could have been, son, why did you do this to us? Or it could have been in your tone of voice, son, why did you do this to us? We about died looking for you for three days. We haven't slept. I mean, with that type of a tone to it, we really don't know. But we're gonna we're gonna ponder that this evening. Your father and I have been looking for you with great anxiety. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Now this is Mary and Joseph. They, Each of them had been spoken to God by angels at some point in their life. And yet, I still don't know whether they fully understood this. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Maybe they didn't fully understand. Who Jesus was. I mean, you might know something. It's like the mysteries of the church. We know that the Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ, but do we really know it, or do we just say, I believe this? So we don't We don't know, but that's, that's Jesus' response. He's 12 years old. He's the uh, age of adulthood in that time. He says, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he said to them. So they they did not fully comprehend. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was obedient to them. And his mother kept all these things in her heart. And Jesus advanced in wisdom and age and favor before God. So the part that we're going to talk about tonight is, did you not know that I must be about my father's that's, that's a, a different translation. Did you not know that I must speak about my father's business? His response, it's, it's interesting, because the, the, the title tonight is God's Great Dream. Every child is wanted by God, cherished in the heart of God. All of us, when we were conceived in our mother's womb, God had a plan for us. Now, we, we all maybe are familiar with the famous uh, scripture quote from Jeremiah. Before I knit you in the womb, I knew you. I know the great plans I have for you. That's how God feels about every one of us. We may not have Jeremiah's job to go and preach to people and be tortured and put into a pit and all that stuff. We may not have the same role of Jesus. Actually, we, we do not have that same role. But we may have the role of Pope Francis. We may have the role of St. John Bosco. We may have the role of Padre Pio. We may have the role of St. Maximilian Kolbe. God knew that. He knew what he wanted us to accomplish. And then it's a matter of, do we cooperate with that? We look back at Jesus' comments. He says, why were you looking for me? Did you not know it must be in my Father's house? He had already felt that call to be about his father's business, to get on with the work that his father set him to do at age 12. Now, when his mother and father said, you know, he could tell that they were not real happy about this, he went back with them to Nazareth, to their home, and was obedient to them for many more years.
1: Yes. I was just going to relate to the fact that you know, this is at least 12, and they will also say that vocations, one of the seed times of vocations when people start to feel a call to the religious life is that 11, 12-year-old age. And it's kind of like that whole you know, coming of age is when we start to really feel our call of our vocation, whether our vocation is going to be married life or religious life, or you know, it's like starting to know God's plan for us comes at that time. Good point. Did for Jesus.
0: I like to say that uh, we have for until age 12 to effectively train our children. And after age 12, we can still compel them to act a certain way. But the relationship has to start evolving because they have started to take on really an adult-like mind, an adult-like body, and it is good to encourage them you start to make their own decisions within reason. As they get closer to 18, their bodies change again and they are really compelled to be out of the house, to be living their own life and to be making their own decisions. At age 12, it really makes sense that this is happening. Is
1: this However, <laughs> this is something that
0: causes parents a lot of consternation. <laughs> it really is just unnatural because we've been nourishing this child and we have this idea of what they should be. I mean, we've we've been taking care of them for 12 years or more, and and we kind of have this idea that, well, you'd be really good at this. And really, I want you to do this and not this. And yet, as we've talked about in previous sessions, our children will surprise us at times. They They will do things that are unexpected, such as is the case with Jesus in the temple, completely unexpected to his parents. But yet God has a plan for them. God's plan is actually better than ours. Do we all believe that? Yeah. That it is better. However, think about it from that parent standpoint. You have a child that is strong-willed. You can think of St. Peter. St. Peter was a fisherman. When Jesus came up to him, he said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. Is that who you would want your son to be? He's a fisherman, he's dirty, he's scantily clad, jumping off of boats into the water, tucking in, you know, he's he's a manly man. He's rough around the edges. And he even told Jesus, leave from me, I'm a sinful man. He knows his own sinfulness. He denied Christ three times in front of a little girl, a little Jewish girl. Now, I could see denying maybe in front of a big guard with a spear, but this was a little girl, and yet he denied Christ. There's a lot of stuff in Peter, and it's all in the scriptures for us to see, that we as parents may not have been that proud of. Yet God knew what plan he had for Peter. That despite his impulsiveness, that he would use him as the first pope. And somebody to stand up there after receiving the Holy Spirit and proclaim and and, and oversee 5,000 people entering into the church at Pentecost. Wow. I don't think his parents saw that. That all the people that were in his life, his 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 brothers and his cousins, probably didn't see that. And yet Christ could see it. Now was it a straight path from, he met Jesus, said, I'm a sinful man, go away. And Christ said, no, 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 it's okay. Your name is now Peter. and It's okay, I've, I'm going to use you to catch men. Was it a straight line from there? No. It was very crooked. I, I'm sure that he felt pretty bad. I mean, you look at that, that scene at the... Uh, um, at the seashore when Jesus is, is resurrected and he's making the fish for them after he got out in his scantily clad clothes and swam to shore, right, to meet Jesus. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I do. And he says, again, do you love me? He says, well, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And then the last time he says, do you love me? How many times did he say it? Three times. What did that make up for those three times he denied Christ as he was being uh, tortured before before crucifixion. That last time he was exasperated. He says, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. He says, okay, now go 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 feed my sheep. And, you know, you will you will be led at some point to where you do not want to be led and, and dressed and and that was to symbolize the way that he would give glory to God through his crucifixion. Upside down on a cross because he didn't feel worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. Wow. What plans God had for Peter? One example. What plans God has for your own children and for you? That you may not see, that your parents may not have seen. I'm sure my wife's parents did not see some of the things that I would have done. All they could see was me when I met my wife. (laughs) And they uh, I don't know about this guy. And yet, God has a plan for me, and luckily I decided to cooperate at some point. We have to trust that God loves our children more than we do, and that he does have plans for them that are far greater than ours. And we have to somehow figure out how to manage those. Because it doesn't mean that we take a hands-off approach to parenting. It doesn't mean that we don't parent our children in the best way that we know how. However, we have to ask God to help us see his plans for our children through his eyes and not see them in ours because you probably met the parent and it's probably none of you that had certain plans like this this child needs to be a doctor, needs to be a lawyer, needs to go to college, needs to do all these things. And if they don't do that, I'm going to be upset with them and I'm going to force them to do it. You've heard stories. You maybe even know people that they were living out their parents' dream for them. And they were miserable. I know it's guys who got advanced degrees and then once they were pretty much independent from their parents, they changed careers and went into some other line of work. See, it all the time. Discernment and helping your children to discern what God's plan is for them is critical. It's critical. So what is God's plan for each of your children? How do you know? Spend time in prayer Ask God to reveal to you and pray with your children. Talk to them. Find out what their likes and dislikes are, what their passions are. And try to figure out how that can be used to give glory to God, and it may not be a straight line. It may be a very squiggly line. But trust that God is wanting them. So, anybody know who this is? Okay. You know who that is? It's Einstein. Yeah, it's Einstein. Oh, he is. Do you think his parents knew what what he would bring to the world? I could have done Saint Therese of Lisieux as well. You know, the parents of Saint Therese, uh, Louis and Zelie Martin, um, they both wanted to be. I talked about this last time. They they yes. both wanted to be you know, religious, and yes. yet they didn't. And when they got married and had children, they ended up having four religious sisters of the children that survived. There are many examples of that, of you know what great plans God has to bless the world through our children. So God's great dream is rooted in love. So each child, and this is very similar to God's plan for, for family life, to guard, reveal, and communicate love, because in the end, God's dream is rooted in love. If our children love, we have succeeded in our plan for them and helping them to, to, to fully embrace God's plan for their lives. Each child needs revelation, encounter, experience, and participation in love. Love is real. It is a living person. It is Jesus Christ. Love, and this is John Paul II, he says, Love fully reveals man to himself and makes God's dream for him clear. John Paul II said, man can only fully be human to the extent that he learns to love. Because without love, man is not fully human. He is an animal. We we had in the story of creation, all the way up until the the sixth day, there were just the animals. And yet God created man to be able to love. And that's what he asked for, man. He gave him free will and said, without free will, you can't choose to love. So we have free will and the ability to choose to love or not. But to the extent we choose to love, as Christ does, is to the extent that we will become fully human. Marriage lived properly is a language, or the language of love. So I'll just read this one from uh, uh, Deus Caritas. This is uh, Pope Benedict. Marriage based on exclusive Definite love becomes the icon of relationships between God and his people and vice versa. God's way of loving becomes
1: the measure of human love. I just wanted to point out that first first statement right there, because I think that first sentence is the answer and epitome to all the ills of society. So, like, the reason we have these mass murders, the reason we have all the ills of society is to the fact that the individual has not been revealed love, has not encountered love, has not experienced love. When you haven't been revealed love, you haven't encountered love, and you haven't experienced it, you will never be able to participate in love. All of the ills of society are related to that. And so what is love? I mean, Christ is love. If an individual does not get love, they don't get Christ. We as the married couple are that first Christ to our children, that first love. Married love is a living icon.
0: The couple's fruitful relationship becomes an image for understanding and describing the mystery of God. When you form a family, you are desiring to be part of God's great dream, to dream with him and to build with him. We're participating. Every time we welcome a child into the world, we're participating in God's great dream. We're helping to build up the kingdom on earth. Married couples do remind us of the cross. They are a witness for one another and for their children of that salvation, of the cross. Why? If you look at the cross, do you see love on the cross? I, I do. Didn't always. But that's love. It's sacrifice for someone else. Marriage is a gift given for the sanctification of the spouses. (laughs) You can laugh about that if you're married.
1: Marriage is a gift
0: given for the sanctification of the spouses. How do we sanctify each other? Many times it's not by praying for each other. It's by being who we are. It's by being sinful and having to ask for forgiveness and hurting each other. I tell my children, when I talk to kids as well, and my own children, I say you guys are to sanctify your parents, and and, uh, tell, and and your parents' job is to help you be holy. But you do that because you're constantly at this this struggle, trying to live good lives, but falling short of it. And and for a parent to love you despite all of that, really does require holiness. And I know my wife's been asked at times. She says, "Oh, you're so patient." I guess that's how you could have as many children as you have. She said, well, how do you think I became patient? It's not that you had this quality before you had children or before you were married. It's that I tell people that uh, you know I used to be very selfish, probably still am, but I'm a lot better now. God felt that I needed nine children to help break me of that very bad habit of being selfish. Christian marriage is a sign of how much Christ loved the church. St. Paul talks about this. Christian marriage is a sign of how much Christ loved his church. The spouses love each other divinely, but only by the grace of God. Our ultimate fulfillment is heaven. It is not your spouse and it is not your children. Even though you have great joy when you get married and great joy when you have a child, that is not your ultimate fulfillment. And this happens a lot in marriages, where marriage is seen as an end. I marry somebody because they're my soulmate. They're going to bring me happiness. What happens when, <laughs> what happens when they don't? What happens when that perfect person you married doesn't pick up their clothes, their underwear off of the floor. And you may be that perfect
1: person. (laughs) I may (laughs) be. Right. It may not be them.
0: It may be you you're talking about. It might be. So if we hold our spouse or our children up to a bar that says, you exist to fulfill me, to make me complete, they will fail. Everyone will. Only God can fill that. Spouses are destined to the eternal union of Christ and his church. That's what we're all destined for. Marriage is simply a road sign pointing towards heaven. It is a foretaste. Foretaste. Anybody look up foretaste? That's a just wrong a little word. bit? No, a, a foretaste word. of heaven. I don't think so. It's, it's right. the word. It's a word. A foretaste of heaven. It's
1: the right word. It's
0: In the Incarnation, Christ assumes human love. He comes down to show us how it's done. Because God, Jesus was fully man and fully God. Which is a mystery that we'll never understand. But you can know for certain that Christ was fully human just like us. In all things but sin. Fully human. He experienced all these emotions and yet did not sin. He had people betray him and yet did not sin. He was able to go somewhere in the temple for three days while his parents looked for him feverishly and did not sin. And Mary didn't either when she approached Jesus and said, son, why have you done this to us? She didn't sin. Wow. That's a model for us. How we can look at some things that our children do and go, I, I, what were you thinking? And not kill him. Right? <laughs> And just say, I cannot understand what you did, but I know who you are. I know that I've raised you and that you have a good heart. And that you're trying to do something good. I just can't say what it was. But it's like giving them the benefit of the doubt. That's what I got from that scene. When Mary goes up there with Joseph standing right behind her, and Joseph did not speak because he doesn't speak at all in the scriptures for some reason that's a lesson for us husbands (laughs) and yet I'm sure they were both very beside themselves and yet they said I know Jesus he's a good son and he didn't do this to be mean to us he didn't do this to cause us pain and suffering I don't understand it oh Lord help me to understand Help help my understanding of this situation if we go to God in those same times in our families, perhaps we'll see things in a little different light. Or maybe not. The welfare of the family is decisive for the future of the world and of the church. We're somewhat going from don't hold your spouse up to be the end-all be-all of, of your life. Heaven is that, right? God is that. It, union with Christ and his church is really what we are we're going to receive our fulfillment. We will from that to the welfare of the family is decisive for the future of the world and of the church. If the family is sick, the church will be sick. If our families here in St. Max are sick, our community will not be completely well. We will be sick. That's why Father John has asked for this. He wants his families to be healthy so that his church can be healthier. So that The community can be healthier. By saving the family, God shows his face to the world in the human flesh of family relationships, fulfilling his great dream for humanity. God's love may not be visible to many people, but yet when they encounter a family living out God's love,
1: they will encounter God, his face, human flesh. Yes. Before you change the slide, I wanted to point out the one. uh, Christ gives spouses the capacity to live that love. So married life is a calling to heroic virtue. And you cannot live heroic virtue without Christ. And I think that's indicative of how many marriages fail because they're lacking Christ. Like you have to have grace to succeed. It's, It's almost uh, impossible to succeed in married life without Christ because Christ is giving us that capacity we need in order to love because it's it's divine the type of love you're called to in marriage is a divine love and to the uh, to the extent that you enter into that divine love is to the extent that your marriage will be successful and fruitful
0: the church in order to fully understand her mystery, looks to the Christian family, which manifests her in a real way. It's restating exactly what you were just talking about, that the family is that important to the church. The church is really not a complete sign to the world unless the domestic church is healthy. There's been so much written recently about the importance of the family, how it is a basic cell of society, And how the church has really no greater responsibility than to ensure the health of the family. Thank you for listening. For more information on Your Holy Family Ministries, please visit yourholyfamily.org.